0: We've been spending these last few weeks since Easter reflecting on the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, those moments when the risen Christ showed up to reveal himself to others. Today, we look at an encounter that stands apart from the rest, one that isn't often thought of as a post-resurrection appearance, even though that's exactly what it is. This story isn't put along with the others for a couple of reasons. First, it doesn't take place immediately after Easter. And what I mean by that is it's not within the 40 days recorded in the Gospels when Jesus keeps popping up both to individuals and groups of individuals, large and small. This encounter doesn't take place until long after that time. In fact, years later. Second, in this story, Jesus doesn't appear to one of his followers. Jesus reveals himself to one of his biggest critics, a much feared persecutor of his followers. But before we jump into this scene, let's briefly consider everything that leads up to this moment in time. Jesus has conquered death and has risen from the grave. He has revealed himself to his band of disciples, commissioning them both to share and to baptize others from Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, baptizing them into this good news of his life, his sacrifice, and his victory, all given in the name of the love of God. Ascending to heaven, and then a few days later, sending his Holy Spirit, Jesus not only empowers his chosen few to follow in his footsteps, he begins to form them into a community of faith, his body, the church. And what comes next, as recorded in the book of Acts, goes something like this. The Holy Spirit directs and leads as belief in Jesus as the Messiah, as salvation, healing, and life change, the transformation of families and neighborhoods living out of the gospel of Christ spreads like wildfire throughout Jerusalem. And these new believers in Jesus come from all over, from all kinds of racial and cultural and religious backgrounds, from every level of society, rich, poor, slave, free, well-educated, illiterate, and including, not excluding, those who previously, according to interpretations of the Jewish law, were banned from worshiping the God of Israel in the temple. I mean, consider the membership roster of this movement, a despised religious minority that most people wouldn't associate with, let alone befriend, known as the Samaritans a large number of pagans who chased after the favor of other gods and didn't know the first thing about the one true God named Yahweh, the Gentiles, a foreigner and a sexual minority to boot, an Ethiopian eunuch, a decorated soldier of a colonizing military state, a Roman centurion, an independent businesswoman named Lydia who became a leader and teacher for Christ in a man's world as all of these people and more and more were added to their number daily, as every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, breaking bread in their homes, eating together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God, this community enjoyed the favor of all the people. Well, not everyone was pleased. There was one man in particular who was not celebrating, who did not perceive that all that was happening was good news, was evidence of the truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ. No, for this learned, devoted, and faithful worshiper of the Lord Almighty, this movement was going in the wrong direction. It was leading others not down the path of righteousness, but taking people in the opposite direction, dangerously off the path of knowing and following the one true God named Yahweh. He bucked hard, this man, against any notion that suddenly anyone could worship the God of the Jews through this so-called Messiah named Jesus. He objected to all the change that was happening around him, that the rules of the law, rules given by God himself to the people through Moses, rules that had been carefully studied, memorized, and practiced daily, suddenly no longer applied or possibly never applied as they had been interpreted before. The very notion that just anyone could approach this God, the unclean, the uneducated, the unrighteous, the pagan, the foreigner, the sinner, was not good news to him. This gospel was, as he would later write in one of his letters, scandalous. And so this man, the focus of today's encounter, was dead set against it. Literally, dead set against it. This man of some importance, this man of some authority has already sanctioned the public stoning to death of a disciple named Stephen. And now as we find ourselves back on the road again with him, headed this time not on some seven-mile jaunt to Emmaus, not coming alongside two disciples of Christ, but coming alongside someone who, having just been deputized as it was by the high priest, someone who is purposeful in his journey of 150 miles to Damascus. For when he gets there, he aims to round up as many disciples of Jesus as he can and throw them into jail. This is a man on a mission. He is a Pharisee, a religious leader named Saul, and his murderous threats against the Lord's disciples precede him. They say pride goes before the fall, and in Saul's case, this is most certainly true. For Saul is a man brimming with confidence as he strides along the road before him. He is convinced that what he is saying and doing are not only right, but righteous. With the best of intentions, Saul believes he's doing a public service, that he's doing the work of the Lord. But then, the God who Saul believes he is serving, suddenly decides to pay him a visit. Saul, who later changes his name to Paul, retells this encounter a couple of other times in the book of Acts. So we have more information about what happened here than is contained in this chapter. Saul, who once again later is known as Paul, his journey is unexpectedly interrupted by a supernatural event. From his account in Acts chapter 26, we learn that the light that flashed from heaven was brighter than the midday sun and was shining all around him and his companions. And those companions who were with Saul hear a sound, not the voice Saul is about to hear, but they don't see anything like he does. Meanwhile, as they stand speechless, Saul falls or is knocked to the ground and hears a voice calling his name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The double name is used for emphasis and is found in other stories of divine calling, including Abraham's, Jacob's, and Moses's. Saul is confused by his question asked in response to a question. Saul recognizes his vision is a revelation from God, and yet at the same time, he still doesn't recognize exactly who he's talking to. Who are you, Lord, he asks. Saul is confused because he doesn't see himself as persecuting God. Saul believes he's doing God a service. He's defending the Lord. He's standing up for the faith against a a bunch of apostates. Paul thinks he is doing the right thing, but in the answer that Saul receives to his question, his worst fears are confirmed. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Both Jesus's original question and his answer to Saul's question are telling. Jesus unreservedly identifies himself with his followers his disciples. Jesus here is echoing something he has told his disciples, told us from the start. It's in fact something that Jesus even prayed to the Father, that those who follow me are in me and I am in them. The target of Saul's persecution is only one person, Jesus, God in Christ, Christ the Messiah, witnessed through his body, the body of his followers, the church. And just like that, Saul discovers he is guilty of fighting against the very God he was convinced he was serving. Just like that, Saul realizes this Jesus, whom he has refused to see as the promised Messiah, is now revealing that he, Jesus, in all his glory, shining like the sun, is the only way of salvation. And for Saul, this Jesus is the last thing he's able to see for a while, as he opens his eyes and finds himself temporarily blind, Instead of boldly coming into Damascus as one who would triumph over these despised Christians, Saul is now being led by the hand to go and find a man who previously he would have arrested on the spot, to find a follower of Jesus who will guide Saul in terms of his next steps ahead. His confidence in his faith and his call from God have been completely shaken. Everything he once believed has been turned upside down. My friends, what can we glean from this particular post-resurrection appearance of Jesus? How about this? Rather than being confident in what we think we know, what we believe is right, especially when it comes to speaking and acting for the Lord, we need to walk and talk with a lot more humility, and most especially, a willingness to be changed, to have our minds and our hearts reshaped accordingly. I mean, before this encounter, no one was more sure of his own convictions than Saul. As he later himself confesses in one of his letters, He was a headstrong, passionate man, well-educated and a fierce debater, fastidious in conducting himself in a manner that was above reproach. He was esteemed for having just such a reputation. Saul was the Bible answer man. Saul was the ideal worshiper. Saul was so zealous for the faith, so convinced he knew what was right and true that he didn't hesitate to impose his ideas, his opinions on others by any means necessary, even through the use of coercion and force. Saul was not only persuasive, but even violent toward his enemies. He was ready to exclude others and to leave them behind. He felt justified to persecute others, even his fellow Jews, because their beliefs didn't line up with his own. My friends, right now as tensions and frustrations build, as we try to adjust and move forward in terms of navigating this global pandemic and reopening our economy, more and more people are asserting quite strongly who and what they believe is right and who and what they believe is wrong. Such assertions and declarations are even beginning to creep into conversations about if, when, and how we should gather together as a community of faith. Now, this is not the place to address those specific matters being debated. But this is the place in the context of our worship of being in God's word together. This is the very place where we should yield all of our opinions, our convictions and certainties about who or what defines our rights and our responsibilities. Saul's story is a sobering reminder of how easy it can be for us to get ahead of God to actually convince ourselves we're fighting for the Lord when in fact, we are fighting against the way of the Lord. And when we put ourselves in a mindset like Saul, when we get to that place where we harden our hearts, even with the best of intentions of serving God, it takes a lot to break through that kind of zeal, that kind of stubbornness, that kind of destructiveness. Sometimes it takes an appearance of Christ, Jesus showing up and setting us straight when the risen Christ tells Saul he has been persecuting him, Jesus makes an important point, both to Saul and to us. And it's this, when we dismiss, reject, or worse, persecute each other, fellow human beings, we are dismissing, rejecting, and persecuting Christ himself. As followers of Jesus, we bear a tremendous responsibility in representing Christ, in being the hands and feet of Jesus to others. Therefore, what and how we express as our opinions, our convictions and our certainties reflects either accurately or inaccurately who Jesus is and whom Jesus is for. In all the talk right now of our rights, of what we want, of what matters to us, of what we refuse to continue living without, in all the responses lately of protest, of defiance, and even refusal to abide by health and safety measures, of making statements like, well, if other people don't like it or other people don't feel safe, they can just stay home. In the midst of all of this, Jesus stands before us on our road to Damascus and blinds us with the enlightenment of his witness and his words. Jesus said, the greatest command is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, love one another by serving one another as I have loved and served you. There is no law greater than this one. There is no personal right that trumps this command. People will know, Jesus said, you are my followers if you love one another. Love and serve not just the people who agree with you, who think like you do, but love and serve those whose viewpoints may be strangers to yours or even enemies of yours. People will know you're my disciples if you love and serve even the least of these. My friends, there is a lot of work for us still to to do and to figure out, but we need to do it together. And we need to do it by looking not to our own confined point of view, but together seeking and adopting the perspective of Christ. So before we open our mouths, before we post something on social media, before we start an email or a text, before we push forward with our own agenda, we have to ask, let us ask, how would Jesus respond to what I am about to say or do? Would Jesus affirm and bless it? Is this the direction Jesus would have us go? Is this something Jesus calls us to defend or to protect? Because it's this recalibration of our vision, it's this shift in our mindset, it's this breaking open of our hearts is what happens to Saul on the other side of his encounter with Jesus. Saul completely changes inside and out. Saul lets Jesus have his way with him after his encounter on the road to Damascus. The man who sets out from Jerusalem is not the same man who arrives in Damascus. When the scales fall from his eyes, Saul not only sees again, he sees differently. His perspective has been changed from one of threatening defiance in defense of God to humble and loving service in reflection of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. This, the radically inclusive love of God in Christ expressed in gracious service to all, this later becomes the core message of the same man who was once obsessed with fixating on distinctions of the law. Saul's ideals his theology, his positions, his attitude, his practices, his whole life. Nothing about Saul is left unchanged by his encounter with the living Christ. In fact, so profound was Paul's change of heart and mind that he would later write in one of his letters to the church, Philippians, which we're currently studying. Paul writes that he understood his transformation thanks to Jesus was not yet complete, that he had not yet arrived, but in fact was still growing and maturing in Christ. Beloved, what about us? Are we willing to be changed? What right now is the change agent in this moment of time for us? Are we being shaped by our politics right now? Are we being influenced by what we want to believe? Or are we being transformed by the renewing of our mind, the breaking open of our hearts, the directing of our wills by our encounter with the living and risen Christ? Are we ready to let go of our need to be right? Are we willing to surrender the certainty of our opinions in order to have our vision transformed by Jesus? Are we ready to have our eyes open to the needs of others and to recognize it is Christ who we are encountering in that other person? Are we ready to be humbled in our protestation and the advance of our own rights for the sake of leaving no one behind as we move forward so that we move forward together? A little but significant detail to notice in this encounter. The first disciples of the risen Jesus don't refer to themselves as Christians. Did you catch that? They simply call themselves, according to this account, the way, the way, a reference, not just to what or who they believe in, but rather to how this one whom they follow shapes the direction and trajectory of their lives. The way, tell me church, I know we all claim to be Christians, but the real question right now is are we followers of the way? Is the direction and trajectory of our lives being shaped by Jesus? Or are we paying lip service to Jesus while we still attempt to be the masters of our own destiny? Back then, the way gained traction, not by people praying a prayer or asking Jesus into their heart, not because they had a building they could go to in order to have a worship service, no, Back then, the Way gained traction as those who professed belief in Jesus actually yielded to Christ as the captain of their souls, as they followed him and became vessels of mercy and grace through which the Holy Spirit began to radically reshape the world around them. The people of the Way grew in number, not because they were able to assemble in a designated worship space. The people of the Way grew in number because they were willing to go the distance to share God's kingdom with others because they recognized any place they occupied could become a worship space for Jesus. My friends, everything we're doing right now, everything we are planning and asserting, everything we will execute and accomplish moving forward as a church needs to be rooted, guided, and constantly submitted and reoriented to the way of Jesus. I don't know about you, but there's no other direction in which I wanna go. I want to go towards Jesus. I want to go on the path he sets before us, not the one that I come up with myself. And in the midst of all the change that we're being subjected to right now, the only change that really matters is if we are being changed by Christ. Are we together becoming more like Jesus? Saul's encounter here should fill us with hope. There is hope that once again, No one is beyond the reach of Jesus' love. Hear that in this story. Not even if we are as bullheaded, blind, and completely wrong like Saul, we are not beyond the reach of Jesus. There is hope that like Saul, the scales eventually can fall from our eyes too that moment by moment, day by day, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can begin not only to see, but to move forward into a future that is better than any future we might try to offer for ourselves. There is hope for us in Christ, so long as we, by the grace of God, continue to follow the way of Jesus. So long as we, through the work of the Spirit of Jesus, are willing to be stretched and transformed and made like everything else in all creation, entirely new. Oh, I pray that we will follow the way of Jesus. Oh, I pray that we will humble ourselves and we will act justly and love mercy because I believe more than I have ever believed in my life that that is exactly what Christ is calling us as his body to be and to do right now. Amen.